This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things, and sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are true crime producer Stephanie Lidecker and forensic expert Joseph Scott Morgan. Over his career, Joseph's handled thousands of death investigations. Joseph also recently worked on the KT Studios documentary, Murdered and Missing in Montana, which is now streaming on Peacock. Joseph also hosts his own podcast, Body Bags, available everywhere. Episode 31, The Case of the Game, The Cover-Up, and The Fatal Attraction. At 32, Annalisa Ramundo was the full package. Smart, successful, and beautiful, the young woman was a pharmaceutical rep for Purdue Pharma. A Harvard grad who got her master's at Columbia, Annalisa wasn't just smart, she also had an intense passion for life. One of Annalisa's proudest moments was being able to buy her own home. It's a gorgeous waterfront condo in the heart of downtown Stamford, Connecticut. In December 2000, Annalisa met Nelson Sessler while working at Purdue Pharma. Nelson was new and he and Annalisa hit it off immediately. Nelson was well-liked and a good worker, but the opposite of Annalisa. While she was lively, he was quiet and subdued. However, the pair just seemed to work and were spending most nights together at Annalisa's house. At her sister's wedding, where Annalisa was a bridesmaid, the couple danced for all to see. Wearing a purple dress, Annalisa even caught the bouquet. But despite all signs pointing towards the couple moving forward, Nelson just wasn't ready to commit. In February 2002, Annalisa left her job at Purdue to work at a New Jersey-based company called Pharmaca. At first, she was making the two-and-a-half-hour drive, but soon began working from home. On November 8, 2002, Annalisa and Nelson had dinner plans with friends in New York City. It was supposed to be a bit of a coming-out party for the couple, but the pair never arrived. One friend called Annalisa 25 times, hoping there was a reasonable explanation for their absence. But sadly, by that point, Annalisa had been dead for several hours. At around 12 p.m. earlier that afternoon, police got a call from a woman saying she could hear her neighbor being attacked by a man. The woman was very concerned. But before dispatchers could get any more information, the caller hung up. When police arrived at Annalisa's condo, they found her body in the middle of the foyer. She had been beaten and stabbed. Officers immediately noted that the apartment was a mess. Annalisa had obviously put up a fight. Officers also noticed there were no signs of forced entry. It appeared that whoever killed the intelligent and strong woman was let in with no issue. Here's Stephanie. 
The fact that there was no forced entry, that's a very important fact, right? Is that one of the first things you look for? Yeah, actually it is. And you begin to think, was the perpetrator known? Were they somebody that had previously been welcomed into the home or were they intimate enough to have a key to get in? Or was there a door or window that was unsecured? You have to consider all of those possibilities. So the fact that when you get into the interior, the place is just torn to hell and back, that's gonna give you some kind of indication that there was at least some mild resistance initially upon entry. And of course you look for other things that you might see outside. Joseph, in talking about the autopsy in this case, it was noted that there was a massive amount of blood. Anything else that you can share with us about the findings? Yeah, she was stabbed very forcefully multiple times. As a matter of fact, it's stated that one of the stab wounds is so deep that it goes through her ribs into her chest cavity, passes through that open space that's called pleural space and enters her lung. So you have to have a tremendous amount of force going straight down. And the forensic pathologist said something very interesting. When Dr. Gilchrist made his determination about the cause of death, he stated that the relative position of the perpetrator to the victim gave him the impression that the individual was directly above the victim as they drove the knife down into the body. That means that the perpetrator is in a dominant position over the victim, hovering over them. We know that she's got multiple defensive wounds on her hands. So at autopsy, when they classify this as defensive wounds, you know, and this is, this is the chilling part, because there was hemorrhage, she had an awareness that she was being attacked. She had an ongoing need to survive. Her primal person kicked in at that point and, and tried to fend this person off as they were attacking it. And this is kind of striking as well. She's got nine stab wounds on her body. Not only is she attacked in the shoulder and the neck, but also she's got disfigurement insults as well which anytime I see someone that is cut in the face in a knife attack, to me, that smacks of something else. When you go for somebody's face, that means that you're trying to destroy their person. And I think that at a deep level, people that attack folks in the face, they're trying to strip away the humanity of that individual. She's also sustained multiple blunt force trauma to the back of her skull. The scene is bathed in blood. It's everywhere. So not only is the interior of this home bathed in blood, guess what? The perpetrator is bathed in blood in this particular case. They would have been saturated through and through. Now, this term is thrown around a lot. This is a classic case of overkill. Does it feel like there's some sort of passion involved or something very personal at stake when you're dealing with an overkill typically? Yeah, when you're talking about a perpetrator of a homicide, You've got one of two things when you have overkill. Either you have a person that is a raving psychotic. They've got some kind of psychopathology going on in their mind. But more than likely, in these cases, you've got somebody that's involved in love or money, jealousy, those things that bring up that green-eyed monster, perhaps, within us that just kind of lashes out for that moment in time. And they rush into this thing and, you know, I am going to absolutely and totally eradicate you from the face of this planet. 
Is there something if you are being attacked to be aware of or to do? You fight to the death, you do not get into the car. If somebody attacks you and there's a knife involved, is there anything that we should know to do other than fight like hell? Look, at the end of the day, the only thing you have that's worth having is your life. And so you have to have a route of escape, even in your own home. You want to try to put as much distance between them and that instrument of death that they're wielding at that point in time as possible. And most people don't think about that. You know, we use the term defensive. Defensive is something that rises up within us. The next thing you know, this person is all over you. Remember, the individual that would perpetrate a crime like this, they show up angry. They show up in an agitated state. You're taken completely unaware. And I would imagine when you see a scene like this that is so big and messy and to your point, an overkill, immediately you start assessing the circle around her. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It's likely somebody in her circle, somebody she at least knew well enough to open the door a little bit. A lot of people like to think they have a lot of friends. They have a lot of relationships. You really don't. I mean, true friends. So that circle is small. And so when we're seeing something from Jump Street at a scene that is this impassioned, you pause for a second and say, who hated her this much? How many people's lives could she have touched that would have brought about this much rage and anger directed toward her? Because this isn't just like some random guy walking down the street and punching a lady in the face and then he walks on down. No, no, no. This person took time. You know, for us as investigators, when we see something that is this very impassioned, and I mean, boy, this is over the top. It, it doesn't take too long to begin to develop individuals that we would be very keen to speak with and would want to talk to them very quickly. Because, you know, remember what I said early on, whoever did this, they would not just have blood on their person. They could have tracked blood in and out of the house, out down a sidewalk, because, and I see this a lot with sharp-edged instruments, it's not just the victim that gets injured, it's the perpetrator. So you will find these individuals that perpetrate these crimes They'll have cuts on their own person. They might even stab and drive a blade through their own hand. And not to mention, if that is the case, their blood could potentially transfer to her. That's why you have to be very careful with the bodies. Immediately, police looked to Annalise's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Nelson. He had arrived to the crime scene to pick her up for dinner when police broke the news to him. According to police, when they told him Annalisa had been murdered, Nelson didn't show any signs of emotion. He didn't even ask them how she was killed. Additionally, officers asked Nelson to wait in the condo complex's common room, and when they came back to get him hours later, he was fast asleep. So this is a major tell. Your girlfriend, somebody you are spending so much time with, has now been murdered and you fall asleep while waiting for investigators at the police station. You know, listen, Nelson denied being involved altogether, but the police did say he was not being very forthcoming. They had to ask him very specific and very pointed questions to get any answers at all. He told the police that he wasn't dating anybody else and that he definitely did not know of anybody who would want to harm Annalisa. But at the same time, he wasn't giving any other extra details. Your loved one has been murdered. 
it seems as though you would want every detail you've ever known about them to be shared with officials so that they could properly make their investigation effective and that they could properly find the person who did this. Why would he be so cavalier about it or why would he not be forthcoming with information? If an individual is involved intimately with someone, if you're sharing a bed with them, you're the first person we're coming for. Make no bones. You know, you can protest your innocence all you want to. You're going to be questioned. That's the reality of it. We've learned that from years and years and years of experience. There's actually an old adage, you're more at risk with the person you're in bed with than you ever are relative to a stranger walking down the street. You know, and maybe they're not the, the perpetrator, but I'm going to want them to cooperate. As an investigator, I'm going to want to really strongly emphasize to them, look, your girl is dead. And not only is she dead, she's been butchered. And there is somebody out there, if you care about her, if you care about her family, we don't know what's going on here. We've walked into this thing, it's a bloodbath at the house. Is there anybody that hates her this much? I'd want to know, why isn't he up on the balls of his feet? You know, why isn't he wanting to give me information, wanting to know when was the last time that he talked to this poor woman before this happened to her? He fell asleep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And some people will react that way. They'll go into like a catatonic state, almost infantile sometimes. Maybe that's how he deals with stress. You have to be very careful before you kind of metaphorically pull the trigger and say, this is my one and only suspect investigation ends here. Because then you shut off the flow. If you get too overpowering with him, there's a high likelihood he's going to completely shut down. And then you really do have a problem because you have to be very, very careful when you're initially interacting with these individuals. And sometimes that could go both ways, right? Sometimes, yes, the suspect can be like identified very quickly because it's an assumption that they're a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband and a wife, and this must be a, a fit of rage. And that's very dangerous to just assume. But on the flip side, if you had nothing to do with it in your person or the person that you're dating is dead and has been murdered, at the bare minimum, you would want to participate just to remove yourself as a potential suspect, just to get that out of the way. You have to be very open-minded, though, as an investigator. And I mean that in the strictest sense uh, relative to being open-minded in this particular case. You know, you have to key in on what's going on and the totality of the circumstances. To the credit of police, they were not myopic about just assuming that Annalisa's boyfriend was involved. You know, they actually did have another potential suspect, a drifter seen apparently at the docks near Annalisa's home when she was murdered. And residents came forward saying that he was a little bit about town, talking about the crime and some of the circumstances about the crime that potentially hadn't been made public yet, which is also very confusing. Police, however, really didn't put apparently too much effort into it and kind of brushed it off. What about the 911 call, for example? How important are things like that to an investigation, Joseph? From the initial point of contact, everything can be won or lost in that one millisecond when that call comes in, because you don't know if it's going to be an evidence-rich call. And when I say evidence, it's we're talking about things like circumstantial evidence, like I heard this, I saw that. One last thing that I thought was an interesting and curious detail was that this 911 caller, they didn't call from a home phone or a cell phone. They called from a payphone. If a 911 call is initiated, you're going to know that point of origin relative to the 911 call. So that's a major piece of information. And the fact that it did come from payphone from an investigative standpoint, 
I would want to know the geographic relationship between that stand, if it's a freestanding payphone just on the sidewalk, to the crime scene. Is it possible that an individual could actually stand at that payphone and hear a domestic disturbance where you can give the kind of detail that we're talking about, the brutal nature of this. And so you go out and you kind of test this. And a lot of it's dependent upon the acuity of the individual that can actually hear, the pitch, the range, the spectrum of sound. Is it disguised by buildings or structures? You know, I would assume that this area where she lived, you've got multiple dwellings there. So you'll have sound that's bouncing off. Also, water comes into play. That changes the dynamic of the sound as well. From the very beginning, I'd want to find that phone. I'd want to go there. And if I can line of sight, eyeball that structure where she lived, I want to know if I could hear something. I'd want somebody to go inside of that home while I'm standing out there and scream as loud as they could. And I'd have my recorder there to see if I could actually hear it. That way we can validate it. Now, if we can't validate it that way, you know what I'm going to surmise at that point? Whoever made that call may have had more intimacy at that moment in time. They may have had more proximity to the event, or maybe they wanted to try to put some distance between themselves. They felt some mercy or they felt something with them. Maybe it was a perpetrator. They don't want her body to lay in there for a protracted period of time. They want this to be known to somebody. That can happen as well. So this is nuanced, man. I mean, it's really nuanced stuff when you begin to think about it. This is the infamous bystander effect, right? Oftentimes you might hear something happening, we've been told, and you're afraid to get involved, right? You don't want to be dragged into it out of fear for whatever. Maybe you're not supposed to be where you are right now that you're making this phone call. Maybe you don't want to get involved with something super scary and violent. So the payphone thing also could simply be that somebody wanted to be anonymous and wanted to make an anonymous call and call in a threat. And they didn't want to be dragged into it, but they just wanted officials to know that something really scary was happening and they don't want any involvement. Criminologists study what's called victimology. You have what are called primary victims, then you have secondary victims. And a person that makes a phone call like this, let's just say they had nothing to do with it. These are actually referred to as tertiary victims. And if the person is not connected to it, they're so stamped, they're so affected by it. They got to tell somebody, I got to unburden myself with this. If there's a phone, I'm going to go make a 9-11 call. I got to tell somebody. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
With no leads or DNA evidence, the case went cold for five grueling months. That was until another stabbing 45 minutes away would break everything wide open. On March 23, 2003, Sheila Devalu brought her husband Paul to the ER. Paul had been stabbed in a horrible accident. Luckily, he would survive, but when police heard how the 44-year-old medical school teacher ended up there, they were perplexed to say the least. According to Paul, his wife Sheila had been bored, so she suggested a game that she had heard about. The rules were simple. The pair took turns blindfolding and handcuffing each other, then they would put random items on the other person's skin. The person who was blindfolded would guess what it was. With Sheila blindfolded, Paul put a shampoo bottle on her cheek. When it was Sheila's turn, she thought a knife would be a good idea and accidentally stabbed her husband. According to Paul, after the stabbing, Sheila panicked. He told her to call 911 immediately, which he saw her run to the other room to do. But the ambulance seemed to be taking too long, so the couple drove to the hospital themselves. Paul also claimed that in the hospital parking lot, Sheila stabbed him again. In shock from everything that had happened, Paul could not explain why she would do this. Police were immediately suspicious of this story. Let's take a listen to a portion of Sheila's interrogation with police. I love her so much. Well, tell me, I want to hear what happened. You had a great day. You told me you had a great day. Sheila, I don't want you to be embarrassed. I am embarrassed, and I don't want to talk about this. I don't understand how you can accidentally like them. The truth is that we were playing, it got out of hand, and it was rock housing, it got out of hand, the knife hit him more than once. Well, let's discuss that. First off, this is a crazy game for adults to be playing, period. And now they're at the hospital. Why would she stab him again in the parking lot? For me, that's an excellent question. You've left me gobsmacked here for a second because it sounds made up to me. I can see people playing around, all right? A couple, they got a blindfold on, you know, do with as you wish, all right? Now you're involving sharp instruments. What kind of world are you existing in here where this kind of thing is okay? And yeah, okay, all right, I'll give you this one. I'll buy into it and say that, you had a knife, you had a bad moment, and it slipped, and Paul got cut. But then you add this extra spice to it. The ambulance is taking too long to get there, so you get him in the car, and they're going to the emergency room. Oh, and by the way, I think I'll stab you one more time. You know, to me, that's super bizarre, because what you're talking about right now, depending upon the state that you're in, this is assault at this point. This is escalating very quickly. One could just be kind of an accidental thing, but then you, you marry it up with a second event. Now you're getting into a very dark area at this point in time. You're verging on assault with intent, perhaps, and that's what's being implied here. So as an investigator, when I hear this, I'm going to think somebody has a screw loose or something else happened. Maybe it got heated in the car on the way. Who knows? But it is super bizarre. And I got to tell you, if I was the investigator in this case, I've had a lot of questions. Yeah. And maybe she thought for a second that he was going to survive this incident, this air quotes accident. And just to ensure that wasn't the case, she'll stab him one more time in the parking lot and be off to the races. After hearing this story, police found Sheila's cell phone in the hospital parking lot. It must have fallen out as they rushed inside to get Paul help. However, 
When officers opened the call log, they discovered that Sheila had never called 911. Instead, as her husband lay bleeding on their living room floor, she called a man named Nelson. Here's Stephanie. Yes, that's the same Nelson that was dating Annalisa. So at that point, police called Nelson back and he admitted to them that he was in fact having an affair with Sheila. So the question is obviously asked, who is this Sheila? Some details that we know about her is Sheila Davalu was a 33-year-old biochemist who also worked with Nelson and Annalisa. Sheila and Nelson met in summer of 2001 at some sort of a work happy hour. And when Sheila and Nelson met, he and Annalisa were very much still together. They were dating and also working together. Lo and behold, Sheila and Nelson began having an affair and things started to really heat up. Nelson apparently had no idea that Sheila was married and also told police that at some point he was dating both women, but that he had recently dumped Sheila and was getting very serious with Annalisa. And we also know what happened to Annalisa soon thereafter and that she was murdered. It also turns out that when Sheila was supposedly calling 911, she was actually calling Nelson, asking him to go to dinner with her while her husband was bleeding out on the floor, having been stabbed by her. There's a term that lawyers use for it, and it's it's in the canon of criminal law many times, and it's a term that I absolutely love. It's called callous indifference. You know, here Paul is laying on the living room floor, bleeding out. I mean, the essence of who he is is actually leaking out onto the floor of their home. This person that she's been intimate with, has shared a life with, and here she is, she's, she's calling up this other fella to set a dinner date? This goes to this idea of callousness. It also goes to a broader construct here when you're looking at criminal behavior, where you begin to think about an absence of empathy, an inability to connect with somebody else's pain. And in this case, we're not, we're not talking about broke. Paul will get to the brokenhearted part later. Right now, I'm talking about physical pain, writhing. Stab wound is actually one of the most painful things a human can endure. It's not just the pain of this thing being inserted into your body, but it's also the awareness that you have been stabbed. So anxiety level goes up, your heart rate increases, and you're pumping out more blood. When the police told Sheila's husband, Paul, about Annalisa's murder, it all clicked for him. Paul recounted to the police that for months, Sheila had been telling him about her very close friend at work named Melissa. According to Sheila, Melissa was in love with a co-worker, but he had a girlfriend. As Sheila put it, Melissa and her co-worker belonged together, but this girlfriend was in the way. Paul remembered that Sheila had almost seemed obsessed with this love triangle. He wondered why his wife was so hung up on someone else's drama. But it all made sense to him now. Sheila was actually Melissa. She created fake names so she could relive her obsession every day, even to her own husband. Okay, so we have to break this down because now there's a lot of players in this story. So in 2001, Sheila was married to Paul. At that time, Nelson was dating Annalisa. And then at some point, they're all working together and Nelson and Sheila start kind of sneaking around. And now that Annalisa is dead and Paul is in the hospital, it seems pretty much that Sheila and Nelson had to be involved. 
What are the odds that both of their significant others have both been stabbed? And again, Joseph, this is where I go off, you know, my brain kind of explodes. People break up. Relationships don't work out sometimes. People break up all the time. At what point does it go from that tragic and sad and heart-wrenching as that is in and of itself to coming up with a plan that death and murder is probably the most suitable answer? You sit back and you hear about a case like this and you look at the person, you think, does your mind work? You know, that you you think that you can actually get away with this, but there's some kind of disconnect with her perception of her reality as it applies to relationships. It's almost like it's rutting season or something and they're just nuts, you know, over these relationships and they have to possess people and, and do all these things. And to your point, this idea that not only am I going to possess you in Annalisa's case, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to rip you to shreds. There is going to be nothing left of you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take a sharp instrument. I'm going to cut your face up as well. One other detail that I always thought was a little horrifying. At one point, Paul even loaned Sheila night vision goggles to help her and air quotes, Melissa spy. So in other words, Paul had bought Sheila these goggles that I guess you can see in the dark as if she's in the military so that she could spy on Nelson and Annalisa all the time. How psychotic is that? Poor Paul is just thinking he's doing something, you know, to keep her engaged. And now she's spying on the man she's clearly obsessed with and maybe the person in her way. Yeah, this, and I think that that goes to the psychopathy here. They do, they go back and they fantasize about these things. What's fascinating to me about this is that this happened and this poor woman was murdered. I think we're very fortunate because she had this rich fantasy life. I think we're very fortunate that this poor woman's the only person that was murdered. You know, because she's creating this fantasy life with Melissa this fictitious name that has been created. And it wouldn't surprise me if she had probably in her own mind, she has an image of Melissa. I mean, she's created, she knows what her hair color is. She knows the clothing that she wears, her eye color, what type of makeup she wears, all of these things, because it's very rich. It's certainly that something that should be explored with somebody like this, that manifests this kind of behavior. That's so interesting. So she's sort of creating this image of somebody that maybe she went to high school with and felt obsessive about from a distance or somebody that she worked with casually and now studies them to the core. Well, it's true because you talk about the callous indifference that is very applicable here because after the murder, Nelson and Sheila actually started to get back together. You know, Sheila would bring him care packages and she was very, very supportive. And Nelson told people that, you know, sometimes he was too afraid to talk about Annalisa. And it was really just nice to have Sheila around to confide in. And she would allow him to talk about Annalisa very openly. First of all, is that a tell that they were both involved in this? Or could this just be that Nelson doesn't have a clue about anything and is, you know, just falling into Sheila's trap? How tone deaf do you have to be to have all of the swirling around you that you can't pick up? Is she such a goddess and has so much to offer that you're going to completely shut down your total situational awareness when you're around this person? Again, it, it brings you back to this idea, you know, he's very fortunate that he didn't wind up in a pool of his own blood with his throat cut. In 2004, Sheila was convicted for the attempted murder of her husband, Paul, and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. However, 
The real bombshell would come eight years later in 2012 when Sheila stood trial for the murder of Annalisa. The former biochemist turned felon decided to represent herself. Here's recordings of some of her time in court. You had previously stated that when I lunged at you, I looked distressed. I had a distressed look on my face. Correct. Correct. And you have previously stated that I looked kind of crazy at that time. Crazy, angry. You had lied to the police? Yes, I wasn't forthcoming to the police. Okay. And what was the nature of that lie? I hadn't told them that you had been my girlfriend in the past and we had a relationship. Right, and um, you did that, why? I didn't want you to go through the ordeal that I had gone through. This whole idea of representing yourself to me is always so curious. And how much of a narcissist do you have to be to believe that you do not have to go to law school and that you will outsmart the United States judicial system as a whole, as you stand for a murder trial? I spend a lot of time covering trials on television. I'm around tons and tons of lawyers, and they all say the same thing. And that's this idea that the person that chooses to represent themselves has a fool for client. That's what it comes down to most of the time. Going into the courtroom for me, and I, I went many, many times as a witness, as an expert witness, to testify in cases. From the first day I did it to the very last day I did it, I was terrified. I mean, and of course, I'm not the one that's... <laughs> Doing the questioning, I'm the one being questioned. If you've never been into a courtroom, I mean, truly been part of the process, it's like being let down into an alien environment. First off, the language is different. You walk into a courtroom, I think in New York, they still say it, they call it to order. They go, oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. But it has a rattle and hum. It's not in sync with everyday life. These little nuanced things. And then on top of that, you are literally trying to represent yourself in a life or death matter. You pile all of that on top of it, and it blows my mind every time I hear somebody that says, I'm going to represent myself. We're talking about a homicide charge, you know, where everything rests upon this. So that gives you an idea as to how confident someone would be to a fault. The prosecution's big piece of evidence that was ultimately used in Sheila's case was DNA that was found on the bathroom sink handle in Annalisa's bathroom, meaning... Sheila's DNA was on the sink handle in the bathroom. Sheila, of course, representing herself, countered by saying that couldn't really prove much because there's really no way of knowing how long that DNA has been there. And remember, they did all work together. So it is possible that Sheila had gone there at some point throughout her time of, you know, spending time with Nelson and Annalisa. Is that true? Because we know that DNA is the roadmap to all things. And I only know this because of you, Joseph. It is the greatest timetable we have when it comes to forensics. It is. And you have to think about the fragility of it as well. If she's trying to implant this idea that, yeah, you know, I'd been there, we worked together. And so it could have just wound up there. But, you know, then you have to think about the sourcing of the DNA. Well, is it just some kind of passive touch DNA where you have skin cells that are recovered or is the point of origin a blood droplet? How do you explain that away? And where was it found? Because DNA, you know, it will degrade and particularly on an open surface like that. So to my way of thinking, maybe there's an off chance that she could have shown up at some point in time and touched a surface and left her DNA behind. But the fact that when you begin to do the calculus relative to how fragile DNA and DNA evidence can be, and the fact that it's adjacent to an area, a wash basin, remember what I said, 
you know, relative to being bathed in blood, you would have a need to cleanse yourself on some level, or if that's your perception. But the jury has to do the measurement here, the balance, the scales. How does this measure out? And for me, the odds are astronomical. I mean, just absolutely astronomical. First off, that her DNA would be there in the first place. And secondly, that if she had touched it and it was a passive event where she was there on a friendly visit, not associated with the bloodbath, by the way, that's in the hallway immediately adjacent, you add that layer to it. I think things begin to come real clear. Yeah. Let's stop here for another break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. So remember the 911 call that we've discussed that happened at this, you know, payphone very close to the scene. The prosecution brought in voice recognition experts to say it was actually Sheila who made the call saying that Annalisa was being attacked, kind of to throw them off her scent. And this is the part that I love when we we come in clear with technology and you can't outbeat the system. So voice recognition, I'm sure that gets used a lot in your world. We talk a lot in forensic science, and here's a term that's used a lot in court. We use the term within a reasonable amount of scientific certainty. The fact that you have this big piece of evidence, that's a real bounty. And she also had a little bit of a lack of an alibi as well. She said there was really nothing that suspicious about her leaving work for hours on end because she had done that multiple times before. And again, an alibi we know is a very important piece. If you're a biochemist and you're working for a pharmaceutical company, you don't walk into an area where you're actually doing testing with medications and that sort of thing. That's a lockdown secured area. So if she's saying that she's done this multiple times, first off, she's painting herself into a corner because guess what we can do as investigators? We'll get a subpoena, we'll go pull the time logs on her clocking in and clocking out. So by making that statement, you're opening the door for investigators to say, okay, we'll put you to the test. And if she so chooses to provide witness in her case, she's gonna be cross-examined about it as well. Remember the first part of the narrative, they didn't have DNA. We move forward in time though, and what is evolving at the same point in time, we think back to the date and time when this happened. We were not as sophisticated even back in 2003 as we were in 2012. The fact that they waited this amount of time is key here because you had an opportunity for technology to catch up. This is a prime example of technology and DNA technology specifically catching up with the times. And since 2012, we've even moved further down the line. I'll guarantee you this, we're gonna see a lot more cases similar to this, maybe not exactly, but where we have blood evidence that in the past we could not have tracked down. The technology is there now and it is gonna blow the doors off of everything. And not to mention the fact that in Sheila's case, you know, you spoke about earlier how it's sometimes the smallest detail that tips an investigation and that sometimes people think they're so clever that they're gonna outsmart the police. And in this case, it was the telephone that she dropped accidentally in the parking lot that really put her to the first test. And now this little bit of a sample of DNA on the sink that was left behind at this crime scene. And those two things got her in the end and that ultimately let officials do their thing. You will not get away with it. The devil is in fact in the details, particularly in a case like this, because there are no master criminals, contrary to what you see on television. That's entertainment device. There's always some way somebody screws up and the more complicated they make things, the more intricate that they make things, the higher the probability is that you're gonna get caught. And in this case, that's what happened. Despite countering nearly every point the prosecution made, 
Sheila was found guilty of Annalisa Raimondo's murder on February 10th, 2012. Prior to her sentencing, Sheila made a rather bizarre speech in court. Take a listen. I'd like to, after thanking God, thank my family for their continued support in the past 10 years. I'd like to thank everybody at the Department of Corrections in both uh, New York and Connecticut. Her words did not sway the judge and she was sentenced to 50 years in prison. When Sheila finishes her time in New York for the attempted murder of Paul, she will begin serving out her sentence in Connecticut for Annalise's murder. Sheila will not be eligible for release from prison until 2079. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. And listen to season three of our hit series, The Piketon Massacre. New episodes air every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.